Almost 30 years after the American Revolution, the United States was at war with England again. This is not a war that is as popular as the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War. It's the War of 1812. Great Britain had used their naval superiority to just squeeze our trade across the Atlantic to Europe and back and forth, which resulted in a declaration of war on June 18, 1812, which resulted in the Brits taking Washington. Do you know that? That, that since we became a nation, a foreign power has taken control of what? Not this state. We weren't even born yet. We were 77 years in the future. But Washington, D.C., the, the capital of our nation was controlled by a foreign power. How do you think it made the citizenry feel at that time? If you were living at that time in America, you'd feel very vulnerable. When lawyer and amateur poet Francis Scott Key saw bombs bursting in air over Baltimore and at Fort McHenry in Baltimore, one evening... And he saw the rocket's red glare against the night sky. And he saw the, the, the flag, the American flag, unfurled there over Fort McHenry, behind the ramparts, the defensive wall. He went to bed that night not feeling very secure. But you know what happened the next day? Flag was still flying. Flag was still flying. And so he picked up his pen and he wrote, Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming like the night before, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming? It turned the tide in the War of 1812. And so we consider ourselves citizens of this nation. We, uh, this grand experiment in democracy was allowed to continue. The point I'd like to make is that though... The darkness of night can fuel despair. That's what Francis Scott Key was feeling. It's the blackness pervaded his soul at twilight's last gleaming. Dawn's early light is a natural catalyst to the human psyche that, that promotes hope. Haven't you ever felt that way where you're, you're troubled about something at night and in your bed, you're restless, but then the next day, maybe you get a day like today where God pulls away the veil, the clouds, and the sun pours in, and all of a sudden you feel more hopeful. It's a natural catalyst 
The essence of the Christmas message is the promise of hope. What I like to do when I find a key word in the Bible is try and find where it was first used. And the word hope was first used in the book of Ruth. Ruth would become a mother of the Messiah, one of the, those that was used by God to bring forth the Savior of the world, not of the house of Israel. She was a Moabitist. But she famously told Naomi, her mother-in-law, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. That's what faith looks like. The Old Testament Hebrew word for hope, tekva, means expectancy. It's something that we expect to happen. It's Greek New Testament equivalent, elpis, means a confident expectation to anticipate with pleasure. Okay. A lot of people, you know, we, we can use that word uh, really to, to, to describe some sort of a flimsy, wishful thinking baptized in unbelief. Like, oh, I hope, I hope. I don't think it's going to happen, but oh, I hope it does. That's not the biblical definition of the word hope. It's a confident expectation. We know this is going to happen. And we anticipate it with pleasure. That's the biblical meaning of the word hope. It's the kind of hope that overcomes fear. It overcomes depression. You know, we like, you know, the, all the, the decor of Christmas and the lights and the stars and the whole idea of it. But a lot of people suffer this time of year because their loneliness is accentuated. And there's great depression this time of year. But this is the kind of hope that overcomes depression and loneliness and fear. It's the kind that God offers. He offers his strength for our weakness. This is what Christmas is about. His serenity for our restlessness. His truth for our guessing. His goodness for our moral failure and his joy for our sorrow. It's a great exchange. The promise of Christmas, our confident expectation, is tied to the most popular verse in the Bible. Right? It's the gospel in a sentence. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And there are th several things about this verse that, that, uh, should, uh, that are attractive to, to, to people. For instance, the fact that God loves the world. He's not indifferent about the world. He doesn't hate the world. He loves the world. What, what's the world? Is that, that we're talking about the planet? And we're talking about every human being that lives upon this planet and has ever lived or ever shall live. God so loved the world. He loves everybody. Or the fact that he was willing to give his only son. So now we kind of get a sense of the breadth. 
the height depth of this love that God has for it. How many of us would be willing to sacrifice one of our children for somebody else? We love our children more than life itself. Amen? God is willing to do that for us. Another thing that we might find attractive or appeal to us is the fact that he provides eternal life. You know, we are made for eternity. There's something in us that, that does not want to believe that this is all there is. He has set eternity in our souls, in our hearts. This benevolent relationship with God now, because Jesus said eternal life is knowing me. It begins now for the believer and never ends. But there is one little word that ought to concern those who reject God's gift. Do you see it? What's the word? Perish. We don't want to gloss over that. God promised Adam, the first man, that in the day he disobeyed, obeyed, that the day that he began to exert his self-will outside of God's guidelines, he would surely die. Did God keep that promise? Though Adam continued his physical existence for a while after the, he rebelled, he died spiritually that very day, just as God said. In other words, he became separated from God. That's what sin does. It separates us. It, it breaks relationship and rapport. All have sinned, the Bible says, Romans 3.23, and have fallen short of God's standard, the, the glory of God, a holy God. Don't make the mistake of comparing yourself with others to get for a sense of righteousness, to evaluate your, you know, where you stand before God. By comparing yourself with a terrorist or a rapist. You do that and most of us probably feel pretty good about ourselves. But God doesn't grade on a curve, right? Unless our love for God and for others is perfect. Unfailing at every point. All the time. Unless we love like that, we fall short of the glory of God and we earn something. We earn something called the wages of sin. What, what are the wages of sin, the Bible says? Death. Again, not talking about immediate physical death, but, but a spiritual separation from God. And I know there are a lot of people that just are rebellious toward God. They live with their back to God. They just serve themselves and they think, I'm not afraid to die. When I die, either it just, I cease to exist, or I'm just 
hanging out at some celestial dive bar with my buddies and we're laughing it up. But that's not the case. Those that reject the gift of God are eternally separated from God in hell. When was the last time you heard a message on hell? That is so politically incorrect. God created it not for man, but for the devil and his emissaries. But man sends himself there through unbelief, through hardening their heart against the creator, the redeemer. It's a place where the worm never dies. In other words, the soul is continually restless there. COVID isolation was pretty bad, right? This is like COVID isolation times a million. There is no joy. There's no camaraderie. They're laughing it up with your buddies. It's just fear and frustration. That's the bad news. And until we understand the blackness of our spiritual condition and its consequences, until we understand that, we're not going to appreciate the dawn of redeeming grace. Dan's talked about it. Dan's sung about it with with the, the band this morning. Does that, does that phrase sound familiar to you? The dawn of redeeming grace? Where have we heard that? There's a sacred song we pull out of the archives this time of year. You know where it comes from? So it's perhaps my very favorite Christmas carol. Silent night, holy night. Son of God, love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face, with dawn of redeeming grace. Everybody. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus, Lord, at thy Mm-mm-mm. If there was no bad news, there'd be no reason for good news, and yet here it is. And the angel said to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy for all people. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That, was, that meant something to these poor shepherds eking out an existence there in the hills of Bethlehem. They knew that they lived only by the mercy of God. They knew that they needed a Savior. That is, that is knowledge that is, that is priceless. And so when he said, there's someone born for you today, Savior, your Savior, 
has arrived. It was to elicit great joy in them. The good news was that a Savior had been born, someone to keep them from perishing. No one in their right mind wants to perish. How was this accomplished? Matthew Matthew 1, verse 21. And the angel says, You shall call his name Jesus, meaning Savior. For it is he who will save his people. His people, those who trust in him, in other words. From their sins, that which separates. Sin, remember, is that which separates us from God. And nothing we can do can erase a single sin. Judaism today is predicated on this idea. And so many people, it's kind of natural to our thought process that, yes, I've done some bad things, but I've also done some good things. And hopefully, God will, when he judges me, he'll, he'll look at it, and, and, and maybe my good things will uh, outweigh my bad things, and he will accept me. That doesn't fly in the kingdom of God. Good thoughts, words, and deeds don't cancel out a single bad thought, word, or deed. But... God so loved the world that he made him who knew no sin to be sin. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. I talked earlier about the great exchange. This is the great exchange where Jesus, born without sin, to, as J.C. said, bear our sin in his body. Anyone born to die, or was it you, Dan? I mean, someone up here said that. He took our sin upon himself and paid the price for dying in our place so that we could become like him. He became like us so that we could become like him. That is, we might enjoy a right standing before God the Father. That's the great exchange to which Peter adds, for God also died for sins once for all, that is Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. We don't don't bring ourselves to God by trying to tip the scales of justice. We're not relying on justice. We're relying on mercy. We don't want what we deserve. We want what God offers. That's the good news. He is our righteousness. Our our, our right standing with God comes through our faith and our trust in him because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross so we wouldn't have to. What a beautiful presentation of that today. One of the most beautiful aspects of this good news, in my mind, is its inclusivity. This good news for everyone. The angel said it's good news of great joy for all people. All people. Does that include Hamas? Yeah, it does. 
It includes everyone willing to learn how to love. This inclusivity is made abundantly clear at the beginning of the New Testament, in the book of Matthew. Matthew begins abruptly with a genealogy. You know, you try to write a book today beginning with a genealogy, and uh, yeah, it's not going to be a bestseller, baby. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's what you get for having a tax collector write a gospel. He's a detail guy. Likes lists. In other words, Matthew is announcing that this, what I'm about to share with you, is not a myth. This is rooted in history. Then he goes on to to name several women in this genealogy, which is virtually unheard of in genealogies of that time. Among these women, there were three Gentiles, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Gentiles were those outside of the covenant that God made with Israel. And therefore, They were considered unclean. There is no provision for them in order for them to stand before God and worship God and be accepted by God. They were unclean. And here they are in the genealogy. The king of kings, Tamar, in case you don't know, she committed incest with Judah. Judah, he he had his own issues. Not a moral man. Yet, he's the head of one of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. If you had these kind of people, you know, maybe in your family tree, would you shout about it? He boldly inserts them as mothers of the Messiah. Why? Because it was the truth. And he had nothing to hide. In fact, it made the truth more glorious. He doesn't doesn't stop there. In verse 6 of Matthew chapter 1, he mentions that Solomon was born to David through the wife of Uriah. He goes and he, he mentions all these other women by name, but here he doesn't mention Bathsheba, but only Uriah. Why does he do that, do you think? Because Matthew's intent wasn't to humble Bathsheba by calling her out, but to humble David by reminding him about what Uriah was to him. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He's listed as a mighty man. That man, he, he, was, he was part of his protective detail. Today, you know, there's the famous saying that, you know, the bodyguard is willing to take a bullet to protect someone, the person whose body they're guarding. That's Uriah, willing to take a bullet for David. God created this this. Uh, 
protective detail to keep David alive. David had a, had a kind of, uh, you know, a habit of getting in trouble. Chased like a partridge in the mountains by King Saul for years and years. But these men stood by him, willing to lay their life down for him. But one spring when his men, his mighty men, were off to war, he decided to, to stay behind. And he watches and he sees Uriah's wife and he takes her and he impregnates her and then he arranges to have Uriah killed to cover it up. That's David, whom God said is a man after my own heart. He didn't do everything right all the time, just like you, and just like me, and just like these women. They had a history. But they are all accepted by Christ through faith. By repentance and faith, they are woven into his resume, into his family tree. And the, and the Bible boasts in them. Jesus truly was a friend of sinners. I mean, that's, that's, that's what the Pharisees called Jesus to, to you know, trash talk him. But he wore it as a badge of honor. It should make all of us feel good. That Jesus is a friend of sinners. So no matter where you've been or no matter what you've done, the Christmas gift, this perfect gift of God has been offered to you. The good news of great joy is for you. It's for me if we're willing to receive the gift. Does this sound too good to be true? I mean, the whole, the whole Christmas story. And this shall be a sign to you. You'll find a virgin to be with child. Anybody seen that happen in their lifetime? No. It's a supernatural experience. And people stumble over that. But we ought not to stumble over the supernatural promise of the incarnation. He is the great first cause who brought the universe into existence. And there is a law in science that says the cause must be greater than the effect. We are living in the effect. The universe is the effect. And science says, whatever caused this to come into being has to be greater than the sum of its parts. In other words, it cannot be natural. It has to be supernatural. Science tells us that. He's the great first cause. He's the great designer whose infinite wisdom and power Fashioned the inimitable contrivances of the human eye. That's how Darwin put it. And it gave him fits. Try to explain that. You can't wait for all the elements 
that makes a, a, an eye work. The aperture, people opening and closing, the, the lens thinning and thinning, focusing, all the retina on, so it doesn't burn out the retina. It has to be working perfectly the first time or it's no use to whoever owns that eye. In fact, it's going to be a hindrance. He's the great first cause. He's the great designer. He is the day spring from on high. Think about that. I, I love the poetry of the Bible. Day springs this time about sunrise. And Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, after his son was born, he prophesies and, and talks about how John will be the forerunner of the day spring from on high. The dawn's early light, giving to hope to those sitting in darkness. Unmerited favor reserved for us, Paul tells Timothy, in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. When did time begin? Well, go back to Genesis. God said, Let there be light. And by divine fiat, boom, there was light and light beams and the earth is rotating and there is morning and there is evening. There is 24 hours and the clock started ticking. He said, we were chosen to be in him before that moment. By a supernatural God that lives outside of time and is eternal. You know what that means? That means that all history was a preparation for the coming of Jesus. All of history. Waiting for the, the coming of Jesus, that first Christmas day. As Titus said, the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, at the proper time manifested, Merry Christmas. Even his word, to which John explains, in the beginning was his word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And we beheld his glory. Oh, excuse me. And the word became flesh. <laughs> I forgot that part. That's the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We live, Karl Barth says, that great theologian, between the already and the not yet. We live in the tension between the already, the first advent, and the not yet, the second advent. And, and it, you know, it's not an easy time to live, amen? I mean, the it's, it's world is broken. But there is hope. He's coming again. Our hope isn't fixed solely on Christmas. It's just a precursor to the consummation of all things at his second coming. 
Anybody have any aches and pains? Anybody feeling the effects of entropy? Yeah, baby. But there's coming a time where he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more pain or suffering or sorrow. There will actually be no need for the sun. He says he will roll up the earth and the heavens like an old garment subject to entropy, discarded, and he will be the sun. We'll have no need for the sun. There'll be no night. It's only day, only day spring 24-7 because God is with us and he's the source of light. May the thrill of hope, another line from a Christmas carol, may the thrill of hope, the fact that the mighty judge who is yet to come has already come as a babe, a tiny king, as a savior. That's the thrill of hope for whoever believes in him, whoever puts their trust in him, shall not perish, but have eternal glory, eternal life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, this promise... It is full of glory. And I pray that we would be willing not only to warmly receive this thrill of hope, but to share it abroad this season. What an opportunity. Just to, just to share the hope, share our testimony, share our story with our friends and neighbors. To invite them to the road of road to Bethlehem. Help us drink deeply of it. Just bathe in the light of your glory. And then let that Shekinah glory just kind of like Moses had after meeting with you. And he said they had to put a veil over his face because they couldn't even look at him. <clears throat> I pray that we would have that kind of reflection, uh, that others might see your goodness and a trust in you and hope in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.